Welcome to the Mindful Literacy Podcast. This podcast is for teachers and parents who want to gain knowledge, perspective, and inspiration in the areas of literacy education and special education. Episode topics tend to focus on dyslexia, ADHD, literacy education, and mindful teaching. This podcast was created to build awareness for our nonprofit, Mindful Literacy Columbus. Check out the show notes to learn more and to get involved. Welcome to the Mindful Literacy Podcast. In this week's episode, I am really happy to be sitting with Kristen Gelati, who is a literacy expert. She was a literacy specialist for 16 years in a school near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and she now is working for Hand to Mind, which we're going to hear all about today. So welcome, Kristen. Thank you so much for having me. So we were, uh, Kristen and I have a little bit of an agenda for today. We kind of have four key things we want to talk about, but I think the main thing um, that both teachers and parents can get out of this is at the end talking about summer brain drain and how to avoid summer setbacks. Um, to build up to that though, Kristen, um, we were just talking, you know, getting to know each other before we started recording and we did touch on the pandemic, but how do you think the pandemic has affected reading benchmarks? <laughs> that is that is a huge question, is it not? I mean, really, but I, I want to start but start answering that question by just acknowledging what teachers had to do during the pandemic. I mean, near, nearly every aspect of what of their already very challenging job changed. You know, when you know when the spring of 2020 hit us, it was teaching's hard enough as it is. But then, with everything that just kind of came down during that time, it was it was extremely challenging. You know, I was still teaching at that time, and to say it was rough is probably the most severe understatement I'll ever make. You know, we as teachers needed support and every day was a struggle. And more so than I think normal, we dreaded assessments because we knew that scores after everything that was going on, you know, during the pandemic, scores weren't going to be where they should. And and that was that was to be expected. I mean, we of course our students were not going to perform on assessments the way that they would have maybe the year before or things like that. And we ha- we ha- you know teachers hold themselves to that. They, you know, those scores come out and they think, okay, you know, this is a this is a direct reflection on me and what I've been doing this entire year. And so the, the pandemic created a huge issue with with benchmarks and assessments and. Um, I always look at curriculum associates. They put out their data every fall. And the 2021 numbers, you know, were definitely indicative of challenges. Um, If you look at those numbers, 16% of first graders were considered ready for grade level work. That's, that's, you know, not 16% were not considered ready for grade level work. 16% were considered ready. And that's, that's really, that's staggering. And um, I think it was something like 24% of second graders and 40% of third graders. Well, you think, you know, those numbers are not very high. And that's, that's sad for teachers to think, oh my goodness, this is what, you know, this is what's coming in. This is what um, I have to adjust to. Um, what's interesting about those numbers is that they don't, they aren't dramatically different from 
numbers that we might have seen before the pandemic, you know, you're always going to have a population of students who are not quite ready for grade level. But I think what we're seeing now is a huge variation in the needs of students. So you have your, in first grade, 84% of kids who are not quite ready for grade level, but then out of that 84% of kids, you've got levels that are all over the place. Mm -hmm. You're not just like, okay, they're just not quite ready. No, you have some that maybe you're just like, oh, almost so close, but then ones that are maybe several years behind where they Mm -hmm. should be. So, you know, for a teacher to to have all of that variation, you know, in his or her classroom, it creates a, a big challenge. And um, I'm probably running a little bit of a risk, you know, s- stating an unpopular opinion here, but I believe a little bit more, I, st- I more strongly believe in instruction over benchmarks. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, benchmarks, the scores are an issue and we have to, we have to read that, we have to pay attention to that just so that we know. But we have to change the way we are providing instruction to that huge percentage of students who are not ready for grade level work. And I, and if that wasn't already clear to us before the pandemic, it's, it's, it's glaring now. Um, yeah. What was the number you said for third grade? Third grade, right. I think it's about 40%. Third, okay. 40% of. Yeah. Grade. Cause well, I was, when you were saying those, I was shocked at first grade, but then I was in my mind thinking, what was this before the pandemic? Like nationally, I think, fourth graders are at 48% proficient. That's not ready. It's already proficient. So I was just thinking about that. Um, I don't know. It, it kind of seems, it seems very dramatic to me. It is. It, um, right. And it's, of course, of course they were affected, these benchmarks. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. Cause I think that what we, what we see is, you know, what, think about what the pandemic did to daily, just to daily life. Mm-hmm. in general, but then what, what, what it did to daily classroom routines, mm-hmm. what teachers are so used to being able to do with their kids, the interactions that teachers can have with their students on a daily basis and how much of a difference that makes mm-hmm. in instruction and the goals that they're trying to reach, you know, it just puts the spotlight on how important those interactions really are, you know, yeah. when you can't have them anymore. Mm-hmm. Yep. And two things come to mind. One, um, well, I'll just start with this and then I'll go backwards. But I just was on the phone today with a parent who um, was like, my kid just got diagnosed with a hearing loss and she had been sitting and in school for over a year with everyone was wearing masks. Like, yep. of course, that may, of course, that wasn't helping. <laughs> you know, she was probably way more used to reading lips than anyone than anyone ever realized. Um, and being able to pair those um, the sounds and piece together Absolutely. <laughs> what she's missing by reading facial cues and such. Um, but then the other thing, when you were saying instruction, kind of you'll take instruction over benchmarks every, any day, I totally agree, especially as an intervention specialist. Right. We're all about individual goals and growth. Mm-hmm. Can, how much yes. can we grow this kid? Right. And I would often find myself saying, you know, the benchmark test is not sensitive enough to measure the progress this kid has made and exactly. to measure the impact this teacher has had. But here's what we know. This, these were our goals and objectives mm-hmm. and they blew them out of the water or we were really close right. or we were, we blew some out of the water. We were close on others. So I totally agree with you and thinking about taking more of a instructional and individualized tar- learning target approach to repairing 
um, and bringing kids up to where they need to be over a period of time. Absolutely. Key. Yeah. And, yeah. and the growth is huge. I mean, because that, that's the life that I lived as well. I mean, of course, you know, my, my students didn't always end the year at the end of your benchmark. But I always compared it to where they came in at the beginning of the year or even where they were in the middle of the year. And the growth that they made was what I needed to see. I, I worried about benchmark scores, but what I, what I was more concerned about was if the number was growing as the year went on. Of course, that's mm-hmm. what I wanted to see out of, out of my students. So I can totally relate to where you're, to where you're coming from there. You know, it's, it's I think, intervention um, teachers look at it a little bit differently, you know, than classroom yeah. teachers might. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's been also hard for parents as a shift because we've been trained since our kids started kindergarten to look at those benchmark scores three times a year. And when we see a number drop, I mean, usually all red flags go off and people are panicking, but I've been saying, no, no, that's just one data point. It's just, it's just one data point. How are they doing every day in school? How are they doing month to month? Um, you know, and and the teachers have the best handle on that type of um, more um, formative data. You're right. They do, and I and I feel like the like you're saying, you know, that that one one little benchmark test does not show the big picture either. That might really only be um, giving you an idea of one particular skill, even. And, you know, the nice part about being an intervention and, you know, and, and classroom teachers too. I mean, you do so many things with your kids every day that you can give, you can give 20 strengths that a student has, you know, to, to counteract maybe that one area that they might be struggling. So that's, that's a nice, you know, way to think about it too, is that that one score doesn't, um, you know, it doesn't encompass everything. It doesn't encompass the entire student, you know, the whole child yeah, right. is, you know, just one little piece. Yeah. Well, that kind of brings in, I feel like, you know, your role at hand to mind. I am really intrigued by the name of the company. Obviously, um, as a dyslexia therapist, we use multisensory instruction and kinesthetic is always one of those things. And even as a teacher of the deaf, um, I, everything was visual and hands-on. So right. I, I'm really excited to hear, and I know you're so passionate about the products that you've been helping to develop with Hands of Mind. So um, can you talk a little bit about the importance of manipulatives when teaching reading? Oh, gosh, sure, of course. I it's Yeah, children, you know, they learn by doing, right? And the, th- the thing about using multiple senses during activities is that it really helps the kids make connections with what they're doing and their experiences. And just like with anything else, if kids make connections with their experiences, then they're just going to be that much more memorable. The kids are going to be able to recall those experiences and apply them in the future, you know, more quickly and easily. If you remember something and you enjoyed something, it's going to come to the front of your mind a lot easier than something that, you know, not so much, right? So um, in multi-sensory learning, what the students are doing, they're using more than one sense at a time. And then that's giving them more than one way to make those connections. And in this type of approach, it uses different areas of the brain too. And it's beneficial to all students. You know, it's beneficial to everyone, but it's especially beneficial to those who might think a little bit differently. And, you know, maybe non-traditional, just kind of like the paper, pencil, you know, reading words off a page type instruction. 
um, multi-sensory instruction includes activities that allow the kids to gather information in visual, auditory, tactile, and kinesthetic ways. So we get all four of those in there, then you know it's just going to be hugely beneficial to the kids. And um, one way to do this to achieve this type of instruction is through manipulatives. You know, I personally, you know, of course, you know, as a as a reading specialist, moving counters around to represent the sounds in spoken words. We're not worried so much worried about the letters yet. We want to we want to be thinking about the sounds of those words and in, in those words. And you can just use like anything you want, you know, any type of little counter. And doing that one activity where you're moving moving chips or something into, you know, around on a piece of paper. That's visual, auditory, tactile, and kinesthetic. That hits all four of our, you know, all, all four modes of, of a multi-sensory, you know, type instruction just in one activity. Yeah, I, I am like beaming over here because I, when I would have a kid who I was working on phonemic awareness with, I would read my math um, yes. toolkit you got it. for mm-hmm. different counters. I'm, I, I've used all sorts of different things, circles or like the, the 10 blocks or whatever, yes. because phonemic awareness is a psychological construct. You don't pair it with the letters, right. but the kids still needed to see and touch something. They need to see and touch um, Especially like when you talk about some of the phonemic awareness skills, like um, omitting a sound yep. or replacing a replacing. sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, with kids who can't hear quite the difference of the short vowel sounds because of whatever reason that mm-hmm. that middle actually like moving the middle sound out physically was really really important to their understanding of how our language is put together on a sound level it's so true and it's so funny that you said that about reading the math because that's exactly what people think people think you can't you don't need manipulatives for literacy you use that you use manipulatives in math and it's just so, that's so funny that you said that because yes, we will use literally the same things. I remember asking when I first started using manipulatives when I was teaching, I went to an, a classroom teacher and asked for some of their things so that I could use them in my room. And it was the things that they were using to teach math. It was their counters and their chips and their, you know, cubes and things like that. And I was like, you know, I, I need these things. And that's, it's it's so funny and and just to see how my kids really responded to that like gosh i wish i had been doing this you know since the beginning of my career you know i really wish that i've been doing this and um you know with the like you're saying about the phonemic awareness and and it being you know that type of of activity that you don't that you you definitely don't pair the letters with it but and, and there was there's that you know phrase that phonemic awareness can be done you know with your eyes closed and yes it can but for you know but the kids are going to respond so much more quickly to it and so much better to the phonemic awareness concepts if you are you know, if they have their eyes open and they are working with something tangible and something physical it's it's just, it just makes a world of difference yeah and I think too. It's not, well, first of all, it could be done in large group, small group, mm-hmm. individual, whatever. Right. But when you're working, like, let's say you're working with a preschool or a kindergarten on phonemic awareness and you're using a manipulative, it is such a good, you know, it is such a good indication to you as the teacher, like a formative assessment almost, like if they're struggling with that phonemic awareness, you know, you can see when they, 
if they switch the initial sound to the final sound. And it's, you know, that right there, you can intervene right then and there in the moment. Absolutely. Um, instead of having them practice errors, you can like, for me as a teacher, you can literally see how their brain is processing stuff you can. through their use of the manipulative. Right. You can. Yeah. And it's, and it's so funny too. It's just, it kind of, it's, it's getting you to see other things that you may need to address too. You think totally. to yourself, okay, you know, maybe some of their fine motor skills or gross motor skills that they, because if they're really struggling moving, even just moving the pieces around, then you think, okay, you know, there's something I need to keep an eye on. Or I can just remember some of my kids, like, you know, when we would even just be doing word building after we got to the phonics part and we're switching loud magnet tiles and we're, and I'm just like, I'm just moving right along. And some of my kids are like, ah, just hold on. You know, they're just like, not, you know, it would take their take them a second to catch up to what we were doing. You know, if we had the word mm -hmm. map and and I wanted to change the tap and I'd hurry up, I'd have that M gone and that T and they're like and then they're like, hold on a second, you know, I'm still thinking about this and I'm still, you know, trying to process where that change was and, and things like that. And it's just funny to see them try to put it all together and do it all at once and and it shows you a lot as a teacher, like knowing where they are, you know, where they are developmentally in their brain and what and what's exactly happening. Yeah, and like maybe needing extra processing time. Exactly. Okay, that's okay. Yep. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> cool. Can you talk about some of the products you have for phonemic awareness? Oh, sure. I'd love to. We um we we have magnetic wands and chips, and though that's one of my favorites. That's one of my favorites. It's just little. Um, they are little like plastic transparent chips where um and then they have like a little like metal ring and then we have magnetic wands so the kids can use these chips as their counters if they if they're segmenting you know they're segmenting a word and putting a chip in you know maybe an alconan board or something like that sound boxes for each sound that they hear but then they can go the other way too then they can kind of like swipe their wand across and blend that word again and pick up all the chips as they go um and that's a really fun way for the kids to be doing encoding and decoding both, you know, with the sounds that they can be, you know, really interacting with that. You know, it's just very almost like satisfying for them to kind of swipe across and pick up the chips as, as they're blending the word too. Um, and then the transparent, the color, they are colored chips. They are different colors. So it gives the, you know, opportunity then for the teacher to say, okay, you know, maybe you're always going to make your beginning sound a certain color if you're able to do that. And just to give another, you know, visual cue with things, you know, maybe your vowel sound is always a certain color chip if you wanted to do that. And, you know, for them to be able to switch them out, you might, you know, you might be giving them cues that way. Like, okay, well, we hear a different, we hear the vowel sound is different. So you're going to take your, you know, purple chip and, and switch it out, you know, for a different one, you know, because even though they aren't really switching out letters, them actually doing that is making such a difference in their brains. Um, so th that's probably one of my favorite um, products that we have for, for phonemic awareness. But I also am just thinking about different things that kids can use for, for that process, um, like link, like uh, we have something there called link and learns. And they're just like these, they almost kind of look like partial paper clips where they can, they, and they hook together and, you know, kids can maybe pick up the number of Lincoln learns that they hear, you know, the number of sounds that they hear in a word, and then they can actually link them together to, you know, string that word together. And we can do it with um, Unilink cubes, like you're saying about how you, you got your math manipulatives out. 
that's the same with us. I mean, we have Unilink cubes that are usually traditionally used for math, but I'm starting to incorporate in them into some of our literacy products because the kids can, um, you know, hook them together, physically put them together after they count out sounds or something like that. And they can take one off and, you know, switch it for a different one for the manipulation and things. So um, we have all kinds of amazing products that the kids can be using for, for phonemic awareness. And I think that the cool part about some of our products that aren't, aren't intended for that is that you can just get creative with them and, and use them for those just to give kids different things to be working with and see how they respond, you know, to those different products with, with this type of instruction. So awesome. I'm imagining people trying to Google this as they're listening. And if you are, it's hand, the number two, mind.com. If you're like going to be shopping when you're listening to Kristen talk about some of this. Can you talk a little bit about, because you have had a role in developing some of these products. Can you talk about the process of developing the products? Oh my gosh. Yes. Developing, when we're developing products, I mean, it is, it's a, it's quite the process, um, you know, how, how we go about, you know, developing products that are used by teachers, administrators, and parents, you know, we, we monitor research, basically. We know that's, that's why I'm here. Hand to Mind was very, um, you know, forward thinking and proactive in, in understanding that there was a huge need in the market for literacy products, you know, to be able to support teachers, administrators, and parents in, in the area of literacy. So, you know, the research was showing that, the trends were showing that. So, you know, we work with teachers, we work with curriculum directors, we try to get, you know, a really good understanding of the needs in the classroom. And then we just start to brainstorm and we start to, you know, refine our ideas and think that, you know, what would be something that a teacher could not live without, you know, and let's try to, let's try to make that, let's try to provide that. You know, we have a lot of former teachers like myself on, on the staff and, you know, we work to, together to create, you know, the content and the tools that are used in our curriculum products, like with the, you know, magnetic wands and chips and like with, you know, the things that we are putting in to kits to provide to our teachers, you know, those, those things are developed separately, but then we also work on curriculum products, like writing our own supplemental curriculum that we can, um, you know, get into the hands of teachers that they are, you know, that they have something to follow and they have some support when they're working with, with groups of students. Um, our products get tested in classrooms. Um, when we are creating something for parents to use at home, we start with what we know works in the classroom. You know, what are, what are kids in school going to be using and how can we make something for parents to be using at home that really complements, you know, what the kids might be seeing in school. Um, we use the same principles and learning models from the classroom to make products that are approachable and easy to use at home. We want parents to feel comfortable using our products. We want, you know, the kids to be able to pick things up and use them without too much direction and too much guidance in case, you know, there isn't somebody that's able to do that at home. We want things to be very user-friendly. Um, and we want parents then also to be able to extend what the kids are doing at school. We want them, to, we want to provide them with all the support that they need to be able to extend that learning at home. Um, we just, we just feel really, really strongly about the partnership between educators and parents. And, you know, we, we just, we want to strengthen that and just make sure that kids are getting, you know, the, the, 
the best experiences as they get, that, that they can get, you know, from our, from our products. We just want to make sure that they are, you know, enjoying it and immersing themselves in it and learning from it. Yeah, it sounds like that sounds like an awesome process, and I feel like a very trustworthy one. Whereas I, okay, so I'm 41. I when I was teaching, there was no such thing as teacher paid teachers, and right. I never really like caught up to it until maybe last year when I'm like, what is all this fuss? But anybody can post, you know, sell something on there, and I feel like having kind of this trusted um, company where people are, you know making products based in research, giving them a test drive with multiple teachers and multiple districts with multiple curriculum coordinators and having parents give it for a test drive. I feel like that's a pretty trustworthy source for learning materials. I agree with you. It's funny you should say that because yeah, we did not have teachers pay teachers when I first started teaching and oh my goodness, you know, that and that's and that really is our goal to just to give teachers the resources that they need to, to be successful, you know, in order for kids to be getting what they need, teachers need to have what they need. I mean, it's just, that's just kind of like, um, almost that's like common sense, you know, in order for Mm -hmm. teachers to be able to, to do what's best for the kids, the teachers need the resources and the products. Yeah. And bonus for you, it sounds like you really enjoy creating the materials. I really do. It's it's amazing to be on this side of it now, um, because now looking at things and creating things, I just think, and you know what, you know my what my team, my team is amazing, and, and everything that goes into even creating one product, I just think, oh my goodness. And now I'm just looking back at my teaching career and thinking of the things that I was using in my classroom and just how much how much goes into every mm-hmm. everything that that teachers are using. Yeah. And it's just putting me back and remind, you know, I'm reminiscing about how, okay, take for example, one OG lesson that I'd have to, you know, develop the curriculum for would, if I wanted to have a 45 minute OG lesson, it would take me at least 90 minutes to plan it. To plan it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'm just thinking like, what a gift to have the things you need just right at the ready Yes. In your practice, in your toolbox. Yes. Yes. And because that is probably, I would say, one of our main goals as a company is we want things to be very accessible to the teachers. We want them to be able to open something up and use it. We know that they don't have the time in their lives to be prepping for every, every lesson that they're going to teach. You know, the prep time is, is, it just takes too much out of their day and it's using, you know, it's using too much energy that the teachers should be using on the yeah. kids. And I think that, you know, that's, uh, we can very proudly say that our products are open up user, like open up, ready to use, you know, everything you need not- is right here. Yeah. And it sounds like you can pair them with whatever curriculum that you, you are required to use or like, I'm picturing this and like, Oh my gosh, I could have used this stuff with my OG lessons. (laughs) So yes. Yeah. Very complimentary to all of the science of reading um, professional development. That's just going to continue to ramp up. Absolutely. Yeah. So, okay. Um, I know 
people now, probably especially parents, are thinking, okay, let's talk about summer brain drain. <laughs> so we would love to hear your tips, Kristen, on how to avoid summer setbacks. Oh, gosh. I think that's such an interesting question because, you know, everybody needs a break, right? <laughs> yeah. And that's um, something that I do feel very strongly about. I mean, it's unfortunate that summer break can, you know, really lead to kids forgetting some things or losing some skills. Um, and it's kind of, you know, if you look at some of the numbers there, um, in some cases, like one to three months of reading skills can be lost. And that's a lot, you know, because if you continue on that path and that happens to you every year, three years of skills can be lost by the end of fifth grade. And I'm like, oh, you know, like thinking about that, it's like, oh my goodness, you know, so yeah, we probably should be a little bit more careful about the summer brain drain and, and what it could do potentially to kids. But, and, you know, and we know that most families, they have great intentions of keeping up with reading during those off months, you know, and of course schools, you know, schools have the great intentions too. You know, they encourage things like summer reading calendars or scavenger hunts, book logs, even like summer school or learning camps. You know, those are things that, that schools can provide to families. But the fact remains that, you know, some reading loss is nearly inevitable. I mean, you really can't, you, you, you can't get rid of that problem completely. Um, and the brain is a muscle. I mean, to think about it that way, you know, your brain is a muscle. And we're constantly talking about the importance of working that muscle so that it gets stronger, you know, with all these things that we want our kids to be doing, you know, all of those phonemic awareness activities and direct phonics instruction, all of that is strengthening your brain, you know, strengthening your muscle that you need to, can, you know, to continue to develop reading skills. But it's just like with any other exercise routine, there needs to be some time for rest. You've got to put that time in there. I can say when I was a teacher that parents used to always ask me, they used to, I think that the, every parent-teacher conference I ever had, parents would say to me, what do I do? My, 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 my kid doesn't want to come home right after school and do their homework. I have to fight with, you know, with him to do his homework. Or she doesn't want to. When she gets off the bus, I want her to do her homework right away. And she doesn't want to do that. My answer was always the same. Then give them a break right after school. And... You know, it's, you, you kind of have to read their cues there. You know what I mean? The school day is hard work for most kids. You know, kids are, they're, they're tired when they get home yes. or they, you know, they're putting in a lot of work when they're at school. And, you know, the same is true for after an entire school year. You know, they need a little bit of a break. They need to take a rest. They need to rest their brains. They need to recharge a little bit maybe before jumping back in, you know, to, to, you know, or to something new or something more. They need a break. Um, think about, you know, at end of May, beginning of June, when kids are finishing up with school, you know, that's their last day of school. I really don't think that they want to talk about a summer reading log or how many books they're going to read that summer. That's not really what they want to do. Just like when te teachers are the same way. Teachers, you know, when they're closing up their classrooms for the year, they kind of don't want to think about next year quite yet, you know, or what, everything that they have to maybe get accomplished over the summer. They want a little break. But, um, you know, for, for me, what I really wish more parents understood is that it's quality over quantity. 
-hmm. I think that, you know, kids don't have to be reading books every single day of their summer break to be exercising that brain muscle and keeping up with their skills. I am a huge, huge proponent of meaning, meaningful conversations and interactions and, you know, the and, you know, the value that's in those types of things, you know, and what meet, what those conversations and interactions can do for kids, you know, it's more than we realize, you know, we think, okay, in order for kids to become better readers, they have to read more. Well, that's a mistake that I made like long ago in my teaching career. You know, when I wanted kids to be better readers, I was just putting more words in front of them when that, that wasn't working. And that's not going to work for some kids over the summer. Making them read more is not necessarily going to be making them a better reader. I um, agree. I mean, I just, I just can't. Like, I, I really wish I could go back to like my first year teacher self and, you know, do that all over again and not just make my kids read more just because that's, you know, that's going to make you better. You know, it's not. You know, keeping activities is just like what we talked about with the multisensory. Keeping activities as interactive and multisensory as possible, that's what's going to help kids, not just putting more words in front of them, making what you are doing with them as meaningful and memorable as possible mm-hmm. so that they will retain and access it easier. You know, when the beginning of the school year then rolls around, they're going to say, oh, yeah, I remember doing something like that. I remember stretching those words out. And I remember blending these words because of what you're doing. They're remembering that. They have, you know, the memorable experiences is what's going to make them better readers, not just reading more. And I just I just feel like sometimes just parents want to, oh, you know, we have to do all of our reading over the summer so that they that they get better. And that's not necessarily going to be the case. It may be for some, but it's not going to be the case for all. And, you know, like I said, the quality over the quantity is what's going to make a difference come the next school year. Yeah, I love that. And I think too, I, uh, a few things. I Somebody called to ask about tutoring for a middle schooler who could decode just fine, like can read words on a page, mm-hmm. but was really having... St- trouble with inferential comprehension so they you know they're like what can we do and I you know I, I I'm always the first to say first of all let's take a break from tutoring for the summer and let's let the kids be kids and have fun but second of all I think if I were in your shoes I would watch lots of really interesting movies and yeah. pause the movie and talk and like mm-hmm. you know when you're a grown-up and either you're reading or you're watching something with the front of your brain. The back of your brain usually is has like a crop of questions back there. So tune into those questions, pause, and then ask those questions out loud and process and talk with the kids. That's probably where I would start. Yes. <laughs> That's what I told this woman. And she's like, oh my gosh, that makes a lot of sense. I'm like, yeah, because if you, if, I was like, see if they can process that level of comprehension conversationally. And whether, you know, it's, it, that in, a, in of, a, of itself is an intervention, maybe they can, maybe they can't. Then if they can't do it in conversation, they're definitely not going to be able to do that in reading. <laughs> You're exactly right. And that's, yes, that's kind of 100%. Like that's, that's how I feel about instruction as a whole. I mean, the conversations that you have with kids, it's just unbelievable what you can learn from what you can learn about where they are developmentally from a conversation and then what they can really be picking up from you from a conversation. And it's, you know, I taught using read alouds. I taught so much of what 
you know, what I wanted my kids to understand, I taught through trade books and, you know, reading them stories and um, watching their faces while I was reading to them and, you know, watching for reactions to something that I said. I said, you know, if, if, a, if a, my kids laughed when something was funny or, you know, kind of like showed on their face that they were comprehending if something was kind of sad or something like that, that showed me a lot about, about their comprehension. And then we could, you know, put, put the written words to it later. I really needed to know, you know, their oral comprehension first. And, you know, that's where we're supposed to be starting with, with phonics too. everything, you know, that the kids are supposed to be doing. We have to start with that oral language. It just makes more of a difference than, than people under like people really probably want to understand. And I just think that that never stops, you know, the oral comprehension and oral language and, and what, what we can get out of that never stops as the kids get older. Absolutely. And I, I think read alouds, you know, no one is ever too old for a read aloud, you know, and I think about some of the conversations I had both about text and about words when reading the whole Harry Potter series, which took my oldest daughter and I years and years to get through, but we did it together. Yeah. Like I think about as a, as a grown up reader, I didn't know all the words in, in the books in those series. Yes. Half, some of them were made up, but <laughs> we were able to figure out what they meant based on it. You know what we knew about our language. Um, but I think something you said, I'll just circle back kind of to end the conversation is one of the first things you said about hand to mind is how important the partnership is between, um, with parents. And I think it's really powerful to hear from you, um, that the experiences, the meaningful experiences they have will absolutely contribute to their reading life. One, because of the vocabulary they'll, they'll learn, but two, um, just understanding our world, you know, and um, the experiences that they can bring to the table through reading a text is also a predictor of reading success. Yes. So thank you so much for, for, for sharing that. Oh my gosh. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Do you have any final words you'd like to add? Oh gosh. I just, Honestly, to, to parents out there, just keep interacting with your kids. Just keep telling them things and sharing things with them, and it will it will help, I promise. And to teachers, have confidence in yourselves. Have confidence in what you're doing. Um, the kids need you, and and what you're doing is is life changing for everyone that comes that comes into your classroom. So just just keep at it, and you know. There are people out there that, you know, really appreciate you and want you, you know, want you to get the help and the support that you deserve. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Kristen. I really value your time and your expertise. Thank you so much. It was really great chatting with you and nice meeting you. Thank you for listening to the Mindful Literacy Podcast. We are so grateful to have you as part of our community. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow, download, and share this episode. You can also like, tag, and follow Mindful Literacy Columbus on Facebook, mindful.literacy.columbus, and on Instagram at mindful.literacy.practice. We love creating these episodes and hearing from you. May you be inspired and energized and share this love with those in your care. Until next time. 
May you be happy, healthy, and at peace.